We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. It seems like there are still a few sensitive Toronto Maple Leaf fans out there. I hear <laughs> that. Golf helps. Here's Scott Thompson. He's a cheeky boy. <laughs> it is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Here we go again. Uh, interesting. And we're going to have Jugmeet Singh, NDP leader, on the show uh, coming up on Friday and uh, talk about all of this stuff uh, as the vote nears on NDP's call for Johnston to step aside as the special rapporteur says the headline on our website, the Global News website. Uh, Canadian MPs are set to vote on a non-binding motion put forward by the NDP for David Johnston to step aside as the special rapporteur investigating foreign interference. It really seems now it's like um, it's David Johnston and the Prime Minister uh, against the rest of the country. It really feels that way now uh, as uh, the Prime Minister and David Johnston uh, continue to leave the country in a tailspin by not simply telling us what they knew, when they knew it, and uh, and answering some simple questions and hiding behind national security as a result of all of this. Uh, and frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm as tired of all of this as you are. I mean, I, blah, 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 uh, saying the same thing over and over again. And now I'm saying the same thing over again because I'm just repeating what our prime minister is. So in explaining the reasoning behind the motion, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said there was a clear apprehension of bias at this point about Johnston and his connections to both Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's family. This is the NDP leader, uh, Jagmeet Singh. Uh, the quote says, the appearance of bias is so high that it erodes the work that the special rapporteur can do. Uh, he said on Monday, the motion tabled May 25th would, if passed, also call on the government to launch a public inquiry into foreign interference, despite Johnston really uh, recently stating that uh, such an inquiry is not needed. Johnston said much of the intelligence an inquiry would look at could not be made public. However, all oppositions remain firm that one is needed. Again, um, you know, I don't think anybody cares that top secret information is uh, redacted in some way. We just want to know what the prime minister knew and when he knew it and what his involvement is with the Chinese Communist Party. Is that so bad? I mean, everybody wants to know and wants a public inquiry with the exception of the prime minister and his special rapporteur. Uh, the vote on the motion comes after NDP MP Jenny Kwan confirmed she had been warned by CSIS that she had been a target of foreign interference by China for years. Former conservative leader Aaron O'Toole also uh, detailed on the House floor on Tuesday what he called an active campaign of voter suppression by China against him and his party in the 2021 election. Uh, I've been watching a portion of question period throughout the course of uh, I just started, I guess, about an hour ago. And the prime minister is continually uh, labeling all of the opposition members who are, of course, asking for a public inquiry, saying that they don't want to look at the information that, uh, you know, David Johnson has offered to bring them in. Well, why would they want to be a part 
of an investigation with a special rapporteur that they don't agree with. So, uh, and, and Pierre Polyever described it yesterday as he wants us to come into a bar, a dark room to see something we couldn't see and then go out and tell you what he can't tell you. So it, it, that just does not solve any issues whatsoever. And uh, it's amazing that this this continues to go around in circles and the special rapporteur and the special prime minister is trying to muzzle Canadians. He doesn't want you to find out for whatever reason. I'm thinking he's got something to hide, but they don't want to. Everybody else is asking for it. All the opposition parties. We'll see if this motion goes through. And, you know, obviously, uh, I, I don't think it has much weight. They don't have to hold him to anything. All it says is the majority of the House is against what he is saying. So, um, you know, as we look at this and try to di- digest it from day to day, and it, it's just it's got to the point where I can't even listen to it anymore. Uh, and I'm sure you're feeling the same way. Um I don't think the prime minister is going to change his mind because he never apologizes. He never does any of that. He just blames everybody else uh, for his own mistakes or his own lack of knowledge or his lack of management or whatever. So at that point, when does Jugmeet Singh step up and save the country? When does NDP leader Jugmeet Singh step up and and pull the trigger on this government and demand not just ask, and again, all of this stuff is nice, asking for a public inquiry, asking for the special rapporteur to be uh, removed, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't mean anything, and the Prime Minister obviously isn't moved by uh, Jagmeet Singh's veiled threats. So that being said, I'm not, a, I'm not sure how Jagmeet Singh can stand up in front of everybody and say all this when he is, in fact the only person at this time that can really bring transparency and, and, and a public inquiry to, to the equation. Uh, the prime minister is just going to stand and stomp his feet and keep repeating over and over and over and over again how the opposition doesn't want to be involved in his kangaroo court and accusing them of not wanting to hear the information through his select through his select uh, view of, of, of uh, whether it's a rapporteur or the committee, which continually filibusters, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it's silly when you think about it. And Shugmeet uh, Singh is going to be on the show on Friday, and uh, we'll ask him those questions, um, you know, why he is really the only guy at this point that can uh, re- uh, reel in the prime minister. He really is, because the prime minister, if we've got to this point, and the prime minister just talks as if he can't hear us, as if the whole country is muzzled. Um, you know, he's not going to change his tune. He's not going to change his tune unless he has to. So really, it's up to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, uh, the second in command, the second in power, to to do something. And we'll wait and see if that, in fact, happens over time. Uh, he's on the show on Friday. We'll ask him that. Whether it's the bar from Cheers, how about Archie Bunker's living room? How about that chair? Uh, maybe some of Captain Kirk's clothes? I don't know about that. Uh, the man who's claimed, uh, who has claimed such props and sets for his memorabilia collection is passing the torch and putting these pieces of pop history up for auction. Understand it all happens June 2nd. To talk more about all of this, Bill Brio is with us, TV critic and author, and is here now. Bill, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing fine. Scott, how are you doing? So far, so good. What can you tell us about this guy, James Commissar, who collects these? Do you know anything about him? 
A little bit. He's 58 and uh, he's liquidating his TV assets. He's selling off all this stuff he spent a lifetime collecting. He somehow acquired like an airport hangar full of TV props. Uh, things like, yeah, like you mentioned, the Cheers bar, uh, the Johnny Carson's couch and desk, uh, David Letterman's old set, and then lots and lots of clothes and photos and other knickknacks and souvenirs from television. How would he have accumulated this? I've looked on his website and said, you know, his clientele is David Letterman or whatever. It's like, well, did they have anything to do with it? Or he just went in and scooped up the sets. How does he obtain these? He would have had to have dealt with the producers. uh, But, you know, I'm sure Letterman wasn't holding a a fire sale in his driveway. Um, I, I remember being in New York when Letterman's show ended. The next day, they had a dumpster out uh, on 52nd Street filled with all of the bridges and stuff that you used to see behind his desk, you know, on yeah. the set. Um, this guy, though, somehow scooped the, the – they, they'd have models of the Empire State Building and other architecture in New York. He has that background. He has sort of the false window and other things. Uh, and Archie Bunker's chair and, uh, you know, all kinds of props. So normally, where would this stuff go? As you said, would it just, oh, show's over, out in the dumpster it goes, or does it make it to a museum? Is there any, uh, are they even auctioned off in any way, or, or are they literally just garbage once these shows are over? Usually for a sitcom, like, uh, you know, Cheers, for example, or How I Met Your Mother, the, he's got artifacts from both those shows, uh, that 70s show, they're kept and they're cataloged and they're put away. And, you know, you never know because these things keep coming back, uh, you know, and they're looking around for the original props. You're not supposed to steal the stuff. They're the property of the production company. Um, but, you know, I guess with with the talk shows and uh, things like that, things are a little more uh, obtainable, I guess, if you know somebody. So would he have uh, purchased any of these or is he just like anybody that's going out looking in other people's garbage for for gems? No, I believe he also purchased, he collected, you know, he's, I collect 16 millimeter films, you know, and you hunt far and wide for things. And I think this is just, he kept his ear to the ground when, when something was available, he was there and now he's trying to uh, sell it all back. He said that his idea was to someday create or host or be involved with a TV museum where people could go and look at these sets and props. Now, some of that, you know, the Smithsonian has another Archie Bunker chair. Uh, You can go to the Comedy Museum in Youngstown, New York and see I Love Lucy's set and props. Uh, So there are places, but I guess not uh, one big place as this guy had hoped. I remember the story about Archie Bunker's chair going to the Smithsonian after the uh, show had ended. Does this stuff normally have a home? As you said, there is no central TV museum, I guess. No, you know, in Hollywood, they just recently built a a movie museum and there is a Max Factor museum um, on Hollywood and uh, Highland. And it's a museum that's been there for many years. And on a rotating monthly ba- basis, you might see the 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 truck from the Beverly Hillbillies or something, all kinds of props. I've been in there. And it's sort of just the people who are involved with those shows, if they have sweaters or shoes or whatever, they'll still be talking to those hosts of that museum and rotate things through. But it's just nothing of the scale that would be able to house all of the things that this guy has up for auction. 
It sounds like he was waiting for someone or to for him to start a museum to put all of this stuff. I'm sure and when he or, or maybe I'm wrong when he started collecting this, he didn't think he was going to unload it all. Is that accurate? Yeah, no, I mean, Debbie Reynolds tried to do this, right? She collected all kinds of movie props for decades. And to her frustration, she found that when she went to try and host or build something in Las Vegas, I believe, there was no takers, no one to put up the money. She couldn't do it on her on her own. So um, that's the case. This guy, I think, is just liquidating. He'll probably, though, he's priced something so high, he's going to keep the chairs bar. Who's going to pay $210,000 U.S. That's the opening bid for that. I mean, you could buy the house to put it in in some of the states, <laughs> uh, but you could. But there's other things like I want the fickled finger, the flying fickled finger of fate. People that are old enough to remember laughing. That was the trophy they gave out. Oh, uh, right. You can you can bid on that. The opening bid is thirteen hundred dollars U.S. or some of Ted Baxter's old scripts from the Mary Tyler Moore Show for one hundred eighty dollars. Um, you know, there are some relative bargains amongst these very expensive props. Gilligan's hat, $15,000. Hmm. So um, my next question was, and I guess it depends on the piece, but is there any value to this? Who is going to buy it? Yeah, you know, there always is people that collect, you know, among the collection he has are animation cells, the opening uh, title cells of from Bewitched, you know, and things like that. And, you know, people have collected animation cells for years and the value goes up and down. Uh, and there's a shelf, there's a time limit to some of these things. You know, you, if you hold on to them too long, no one around is old enough to care. Some of the stuff he's got from the 50s, like Ernie Kovacs props and things, they're priced very low because the fans of that show have all died. <laughs> so, you know, but if you've got a Star Trek something or, you know, Johnny Carson something, you're still going to make a buck. Do studios care about this, that someone's making money off this again, or are they done with it? It's over for them. I don't think they do care. They're, you know, the real money to them is in syndicating and streaming and everything else. It's sort of a nuisance trying to catalog and store and pay for it's like that all of us have stuff some in, in storage why are we paying for stuff we will throw out in 20 years right that's so, a very good point you know but uh you know the other things I, I i a lot of the artifacts i'm into it like you know i've kept every every time i went to see it uh live taping of the tonight show or a talk show i kept the ticket uh it's a lot yeah, of people who yeah. are baseball fans have all yeah. their baseball tickets right so yeah. it's, it's yeah. just whatever you're into all right, so you said you wanted the trophy from laughing. If there was something you could have other than that, what would it be out of your experience? I love that they've got things like when you watch The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you would, you would see a title card after a commercial that says more to come, and they would mm. be jazz-themed or some right. sort of a, you know painting. They have a bunch of those for like $180, bucks, uh, $280. Bucks. Um, so things like that that you can hang on the wall. There's There's – awards and certificates and even things from the honeymooners. Um, those are the things I would kind of treasure. I wonder whatever happened to a cigarette box from his uh, desk. I wonder where that went. Oh, I bet you that's still, uh, yeah, somewhere in the Carson family. You're right. There's certain <laughs> things that people would have taken with them. And uh, probably Johnny did hold on to his cigarette box, even though Don Rickles broke it once, right? I remember that. Bill Brio <laughs> with his TV critic and author. Uh, June 2nd, if you want a bar from Cheers, the bar from Cheers or Archie Bunker's living room, uh, you can bid on it. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. 
it's not a done deal yet. And Disney's kind of dis- and Disney, who owns the current rights, I guess, of Queen's catalog, uh, says they're not interested. But Universal uh, wants it, and rumor has it one billion bucks is uh, on the line. Eric Elper with his music publicist and commentary, and here now, Eric. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm good. I'm not worth a billion dollars, but I'm doing okay. Oh, we'd still have you on the show if you were. <laughs> so, well, that's 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 just because I would buy the radio station. That's it, right? Would, yeah, and give me a ra- have me, and you would, and you would give, day. and you would a give me a raise, wouldn't when you? you? First heard this number. Did it kind of make sense to you with what we talked about with Springsteen selling for five hundred million or Bieber for two hundred million? Does this? Does this seem out of the realm of possibility for you? Yeah, it does. It seems a little high considering. But then, you know, you factor in the movie and the recent success of Queen. Maybe that's uh, obviously playing into it. But is this even going to happen? Disney, apparently Disney already owns the catalog. Yeah, Disney owns the catalog because Disney owns a record label called Hollywood Records, which bought the Queen catalog when seemingly when the band was at the lowest ebb of their career. Um, they took a chance on them and ended up buying the entire catalog. And uh, look at what happened with that with that thing. But, you know, I and I kind of agree with you. I think a billion dollars is a lot of money, even though that. Um, you know, they're one of the very few bands that have five or six songs, well over a billion streams on Spotify. Um, they're iconic beyond, in especially in the last, um, you know, 10 or 15 years. We're going to be hearing We Will Rock You and Bohemian Rhapsody and Don't Stop Me Now and Somebody Love Forever. I, I wonder if this is just a little bit of a PR move to say a billion dollars. Let's just throw that out there just to show the importance of this band. The only problem is that that backfires. Um, but usually these kind of deals aren't really made public in terms of the amount. But certainly somebody's working behind the scenes to make sure that from now on, we're going to think of Queen's music as potentially being worth a billion dollars. So if Disney already owns the catalog, does this, does this involve any members of the band? I mean, do they get any cash at all? Yeah, it looks like that. Um, what will happen is that if this deal goes through, no matter how much it is, uh, Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon, the three surviving members of the band Queen, uh, Brian May and Rod- and John Deacon, who are still kind of out on tour with them, they'll split the money four ways along with the estate of Freddie Mercury. Um, so it'll be, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars for each of them. Um, and they're not financially unstable. They're still on the road <laughs> doing really, really well. And when yeah. a certain band member doesn't go on the road, that's okay because they're all... They're, they're all inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. They are one of the very few bands, if not one of the only bands in music history, to have all their members have a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 that they personally wrote. So they're all doing fine. I think that like most artists like Springsteen or Neil Young, they don't need to look at their bank account, but this really does provide a nice stability for their family and generations to come. And, you know, these these deals are not going any any smaller when it comes to the dollar amount. So why not try to sell now when the going is good? So if Disney owns the rights already, why is the band getting the music or getting uh, the money from this sale? And what does Disney get out of it? Well, what happens is, is that um, the rights of the master recording, which is the literal music itself. So that's what you and I hear on the radio. Um, The record label owns that. But the publishing, which is the composition and the ideas behind the song, that's what the band owns or that's what the music publisher owned. So it means then that if 
Queen doesn't own that. Um, they can go do cover songs. Um, they can do remixes. They can go do acoustic mm. version of it. And all of that money will go directly to the band slash publishing company. The only thing that the record label owns are the master recordings, which is what Hollywood Records bought. But they don't own the ability to... They, they still have to get permission from the band if they want to do a cover or stick their song in a commercial or a TV ad. They just own that version of it, but you still got to get the other permissions. Uh, Disney said they're not interested in selling. How does that factor in? Um, I think everybody's got its price. I think maybe some of the lawyers might be a little bit too busy trying to argue with with Ron DeSantis over what's going on in in Florida. But I think, you know, it it, it, it it's certainly not... I mean, that number really isn't coming from any legitimate source, although that the news media is certainly picking it up like wildfire. Um, so I think, you know, if Disney is saying right now um, that they're not really interested in selling, it's probably meaning that they just know that hmm. maybe that there's a higher number or that this is just their way of saying Let's get some free publicity out of the band right now because we're all experts in trying to figure it all out. So um, let's say this does go through and they do get a billion for it. If you're Bruce Springsteen, what are you thinking? If you sold yours for five hundred million, these guys just got a billion. Oh, you're mad. <laughs> um, you're mad. Um, uh, look, as as much money as all of these artists have. Everybody wants to be at the top of it. Um, there's something always going to be in the back of his mind, I'm sure, that will say, yes, I'm so set for many, many, many generations of, of lives that we're dealing with here. But maybe if I were to held off for another year or two, could I have had a billion dollars? But it doesn't work out like that. The reason why Queen is at a billion, or at least reportedly, is because Bruce Springsteen is at 500 million, because Genesis sold it for 300 million, because Bieber sold it for 200 million. You need that kind of base level, like sports, where if you're a free agent, you have to look at the other players and seeing what they're getting in order to decide what the value is of you. Your value is only what somebody else is willing to pay for it. Um, so if I'm Springsteen, I'm still okay with it, but I'm sure somebody on his team is like, uh, maybe we should have held out for a little bit longer. Um, uh, is Queen a better deal than Bruce? Uh, is there more commercial viability with a Queen than there is with a Bruce? I mean, obviously, the catalog depth, I would think, is a bit deeper with Bruce, but perhaps not as commercially successful. That's is such that a accurate? great question. And the answer is Queen is a better value than Bruce because yeah. it's really hard to cover Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen doesn't really have a lot of cover songs that are out there, even though that, you know, Born to Run is still heard on the radio and Born in the USA and Dancing in the Dark and all that stuff. Um, he has a number of albums that no slight to Bruce Springsteen that even his most ardent fans will never listen to again. Queen doesn't really have that because they really stopped making music almost 30 years ago. So mm. a lot of it is based on Queen's value of being in a band for maybe 15 years and that's it. So it's all gold and it's up to the audience to discover it again and rediscover it. With Bruce Springsteen, he's still active. He just put out a covers album, not uh, you know, at the end of uh, of Christmas last year. Yeah. So he's got fifty years, you know, kind of coming up on on Queen. So he, he'd been doing it for five decades. But again, I think 
when it comes to television commercials and things like that, Bruce Springsteen isn't really doing that. They've never really exploited his catalog in that way. It's just a different kind of vibe with him. Eric Elber with us, publicist and music commentary. Uh, it's not done yet, but the Queen catalog could fetch $1 billion. Eric, yeah, as always, thanks time, for the time. Man. Be well. You and I can still get in. <laughs> That's right. Let's raise some funds. Who do you know? Exactly. Thank you, Eric. Call us now. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, sir. Thanks, man. The RCMP is preparing to offer close protection services to both senior federal ministers and public servants in response to the rising threat of political violence, uh, sources say. However, when it comes to election interference, not so much. Uh, new RCMP units are uh, expected to offer protection for up to 10 ministers or high-level bureaucrats at a time. According to information obtained by CBC, these new protection units are to be assigned on a case-by-case basis to ministers or officials based on a risk of assessment conducted by the RCMP. And again, man, we can't get uh, CSIS under control, yet we're venturing here. Uh, is this long overdue? Uh, and to offer his opinion, Sean Sparling is with us, retired deputy chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently president of Investigative Solutions Network, and here now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Everything's good. Hope you're well as well. Sean, thanks so much. Uh, your thoughts on this? Is this overdue? Is this been needed for a while? You know, it's unfortunate that it's come to this, but yeah, I do think it's overdue, and it did, uh, it's just the changing uh, political environment uh, with everything's getting polarized and what we're seeing. And unfortunately, we tend to follow behind the uh, the U.S. after a few years, and it's unfortunate it came to this, but I do think it's necessary. Uh, how do you decide who gets protection? Like, obviously, not everybody is going to. How do they make uh, the ter- uh, how do they determine who is getting protection, who isn't? Well, certainly they're going to do it based on a risk assessment. And even from your introduction, you, you mentioned that. So the uh, the RCMP and policing have professional people that can actually do a risk assessment and come up with a score based on a matrix that they'll establish. And they'll decide based on a threat level what kind of protection is needed. Not everybody needs the same level of protection. Some don't need any and some need the, the, the full uh, gamut. But they'll do that based on a risk assessment for sure. Sean, would this leave others who are not protected vulnerable? Well, they're not going to be any more vulnerable than they are today, but it'll certainly be done on a risk assessment, like I said. And uh, there, there'll be it'll ebb and flow. Like there'll be certain lower level ministers because of whatever happens might all of a sudden uh, need protection. And my guess is that they'll provide it to them based on those risk scores. So uh, as much as uh, it's not going to increase the risk by the fact that they don't get protection today mm-hmm. and others do, but it's uh, it'll be available to my guess as to whoever needs it based on the uh, on the actual threat level. What would this look like? Would it be something that that is involved only when they're working? Is it something that they would have while they're at home? Any response to that? Yeah, it's going to be uh, different. It's going to depend on the circumstances, the individual involved. Some of it might be simply uh, doing uh, risk assessments of their residents. Do they need uh, cameras and uh, electronic monitoring, that kind of thing? Or do they actually need uh, armed covert guards, like which I expect the prime minister has around them? Um, it's going to uh, it's going to be different under each of the circumstances, depending on what the level of risk is for that individual. Is should it be the RCMP that's doing this? Should there be some sort of other secret service detail, for lack of a better phrase, obviously similar to the U.S. Uh, like they do? It may it may come to that, but uh, today the RCMP is the only option. Um, the RCMP is the federal uh, police, and they have the responsibility for uh, diplomats and uh, and for our politicians. So it's the RCMP's responsibility right now. There is no other service in Canada that would actually provide this unless they decide to stand up a brand new organization to do this. 
Uh, what about communication through various other units, other offices and such? Uh, obviously, we're seeing issues uh, between the Prime Minister's office and CSIS in regard to election interference. How do we make this flow seamlessly and, and the left hand know what the right hand's doing? Um, well, that's a good question. My guess is that they're going to have a uh, like a, a strong professional unit with good leadership over top of it. And there's going to be somebody uh, equal on the other side of in the government's off on the government side that uh, the uh, the report into for these uh, for these reasons. I think what you're seeing that uh, between CSIS and the government is uh, totally different than what uh, this is about about providing uh, actual physical protection to government officials. One's about uh, the disclosure of information. This one's actually providing services. I I don't think the two are are actually comparable. Uh, we remember during the convoy that there was several different police services involved and a lack of communication between yeah. them uh, as one of the reasons why things got out of hand. Uh, does the same sort of communication, is that needed here between various services? Yeah, there's a, a continuing uh, evaluation of what the threat pictures and the uh, communication of intelligence information amongst agencies uh, for that purpose is crucial. So the uh, certainly the uh, the convoy uh, inquest uh, pointed or inquest or the inquiry pointed out the uh, the failings of the Canadian uh, kind of intelligence community in sharing information or in policing agencies in general. But that is something that needs to be uh, shored up for sure. Uh, would this involve hiring more officers? It would seem you would need a lot of staff for this. No. Yeah, they are going to the um, like the uh, policing in general in Canada and the RCMP is uh, in the same boat are running critically short of uh, staffing. It's very difficult to recruit and bring in uh, new members right now. Um, it's just not the preferred profession these days. Right. And um, so the RCMP is already running critically short of members across Canada. This is going to be another challenge for them definitely to staff this. And I expect they are going to have to recruit at some point to uh, just to make uh, to, to constitute this unit. What do services need to do to retain officers and recruit? Obviously, it's difficult. Any thoughts on that? That's a whole other conversation that's happening lots within policing right now. Um, the uh, the whole recruitment that you saw in the province, they've changed some of the recruitment strategies at the, uh, mm-hmm. at the at police college and the basically some of the hiring standards, for lack of a better word, um, are changing. Um, there has to be a wholesome uh, recruiting strategy and retention uh, strategy. Uh, it has to do with the uh, the well-being of the individuals. Times have changed, and people look for different things in employment, and we have to change with the times and how we recruit and retain employees. So that's a whole strategy to itself that needs to be developed. Sean Sparling with us, retired deputy chief of Sault Ste. Marie Police, currently president of Investigative Solutions Network, RCMP, preparing to offer close protection services to federal ministers. Sean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks to you as well. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The article in the Globe and Mail by Andrew Coyne today, the Trudeau government is choosing to shift responsibility rather than fix public trust. A government holds power in a democracy only on loan from the public. The onus is therefore always on the government to show that it is worthy of the public's trust. It is the price of power. A government is not entitled to the presumption of innocence. If a breach should open in the public's trust in government, the onus is on the government to repair it. It's, uh, it is not on the public 
to trust it. Uh, that's in the Globe and Mail today. Uh, whether it's uh, O'Toole's revelations of the other day or now uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh introducing a motion to have uh, David Johnson removed from any further investigation into Chinese political interference. Duff Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch in here now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, I am. So the NDP is introducing a motion today or has to uh, have David Johnston removed and uh, reinforce the need for a public inquiry. Does this have teeth? Any significance? What do you expect to happen here? Uh, I hope it will pass to put some more pressure on the government um, and on David Johnston. And we'll see whether that happens. Um, sometimes the opposition parties don't uh, support motions by other opposition parties because they they want to do their own thing and it's unfortunate they seem quite that, united uh, they seem quite united on this way they seem more united on this stuff as they're all voting for a public inquiry do you do you see them staying united on this yeah it's a bit different when you're talking about um david johnston and how you react to him exactly in some ways, I don't think the Conservatives want him to resign because they can then keep pointing out the conflict of interest that's blatant between uh, him and based on his uh, friendship, longstanding with uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, so we'll see what happens on that. Um, I hope that the, uh, the the House committees continue doing what they've been doing and and uh also there'd be a motion to give one of the house committees full security clearance so that they can essentially do an inquiry themselves which uh the opposition parties will control because it's a minority parliament uh minority government and uh if we're not going to have a public inquiry then let's have a house committee do the inquiry um it will the key thing is it be out of the control of the ruling party and when you have at a committee, you have uh, liberals there and, and members from all the other parties as well. Uh, but if it continues the way it is now, I mean, if we ever get an ethics commissioner who is not handpicked by Trudeau, as the past ethics commissioner was, the current lobbying commissioner, information commissioner, chief electoral officer, and all these other key democracy watchdogs, if we actually get an independent ethics commissioner, then I think both Trudeau and Johnston will at some point be found guilty of violating the Conflict of Interest Act because they have uh, so clearly violated it. Um, Trudeau by handing Johnston the contract and Johnston by doing the contract when they're friends. This is all non-binding, I understand. Is Jugmeet Singh the only person who really has the power to keep the prime minister in check over this issue with you know, threatening to to trigger an election in any way. He has said yesterday publicly that he will not force uh, an election on this, yet it appears the Prime Minister is just doubling down and doubling down and repeating the same thing he's been saying for weeks. Um, at, at what point does Jagmeet Singh have to act here? Yeah, he, he is really stuck with a dilemma. Um, if we had an election now, we don't have the safeguards in uh, currently, we have huge loopholes in the laws that essentially make secretly influencing uh, candidates and trying to work for their election or or uh, defeat uh, in secret when you are essentially representing a foreign government. Uh, that's all legal now because of huge loopholes in our laws. 
and our and our lobbying laws as well. So having an election now isn't great when we're that vulnerable to foreign interference. That being uh, said, at, just, at the let same me, time, let, let, you know, Trudeau and Johnston are denying things and and trying to essentially cover up a situation while in a conflict uh, you know, of interest. I, We've heard the argument that in, that NDP leader has made, Jagmeet Singh, that, you know, we got to get all this figured out before we continue on with the next election, yet we're already going through with by-elections, and the last two elections were uh, obviously conducted, and there, we were aware of election interference. We've also heard that this has been going on for decades and will continue, too. So is uh, waiting until uh, the coast is clear, uh, I mean, is that even realistic, considering this is ongoing? I mean, uh, they'll be involved in, in trying to influence in every single election, is that any reason not to have one? No, uh, you're right. It will continue, and some things will be really difficult to ever stop. Um, the main one is something's posted on social media that's a lie. It's posted just before Election Day. It doesn't matter if you asked for it to be removed. It's going to take a couple of, ma- of days for it to be removed, and if it goes viral and affects the election's results, then... Um, it's nothing Nothing can be done about it except to possibly penalize people afterwards if you can even find out who they are. So there will be difficult things to stop even if we closed all of the loopholes. Um, he, his other point is that we've, we're pushing for other things that Canadians care about more. Um, so, you know, that's an argument for him to make and people can agree or disagree as to whether he should pull the plug on this partnership or not. Uh he could still keep pushing the NDP could for for uh, things they think Canadians are more think are more important and withdraw from the legislative agreement, which would be then a threat to Trudeau that an election could happen at any time mm. if there's a vote of non-confidence. Uh, and that legislative agreement's gone, which is essentially protecting the Liberals from votes of non-confidence at this point. So I, th- I think that's his next step is to say the we no longer have a legislative agreement with the Liberals. We are now looking at every bill on a case-by-case basis, bill-by-bill basis, and uh, we'll be deciding whether we'll support the government or not. Um, hmm. And we'll continue pushing for all the things that were in the legislative agreement. I think that's where he goes next and then decides whether uh, Trudeau and this whole issue is worth actually voting non-confidence because I'm sure once the legislative agreement's gone – you'll see the Conservatives or Bloc bring a non-confidence motion against the government. Duff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, where we are now in the ongoing issue of election interference. Duff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. We're all concerned about the economy in a post-pandemic world. The national economy continued to grow overall. And remember the interest rates uh, rising and such. We're trying to cool everything down, inflation and such. Uh, the uh, national economy continued to grow overall in the first quarter of 2023 as consumers spent more in the face of recession fears, according to Stats Canada. To talk more about this and some other news we have, Michael Veal is with us, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, uh, Statistics Canada Research Data Centre, and with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I hope you are too. 
So far, so good. Michael, I want to read you a headline that uh, has just come across our desk and get your thoughts. Justin, this is coming from the Toronto Star. Uh, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford reach tentative deal worth billions more to save Stellantis EV plant. Uh, I'll read the first uh, paragraph. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Premier Doug Ford have reached a tentative deal uh, for the Windsor Battery Factory uh, plant that could be worth uh, more than $13 billion. That means the French parent company of Chrysler, Jeep, and Fiat might receive even more Canadian dollars than Germany's Volkswagen is getting to build a similar electric vehicle gigafactory in St. Thomas near London. But the dramatic move should also uh, secure the future of Stellantis Brampton's auto assembly plant and comes as the company's board of directors met Wednesday in Paris. Michael, what are your thoughts on all of that? Is it good economics? What do you what do you think? Oh, I think it very much depends on where you are in the political spectrum. Uh, it is fairly heavy government interference into the economy. Uh, I don't think it's a surprise, though, because once the Volkswagen deal was made, uh, I think it was only a matter of time that a Stellantis deal that was comparable was going to be made. It was just a question of posturing because the federal government didn't want to pay for it all by itself. It wanted to get some provincial help. I uh, gather from what you've just read me that has uh, happened. And so it's going ahead. Uh, I think it's going to be something that uh, government's going to have to think about exactly where they put the lid on this. You know, they can't subsidize every industry. The only reason to do this is because they they're thinking that this is a particularly strategic industry. That if they can make this go, it'll help the rest of the economy broadly. Uh, where do you draw the line on that? I think this is at the moment uncharted waters. Uh, that was my next question. You used the phrase "put the lid on this." Where do you see us five years from now? Um, well, I. If this turns out to be the big bet that pays off, uh, then Canada will be well-placed in this this new technology, uh, particularly Southern Ontario has always been heavily dependent on the auto industry. Uh, if it goes wrong, um, the, the nature of the Volkswagen deal, I mean, I'm, I can't say that I'm a complete fan, but the one thing about it was um, it really only pays the full amount um, if it is a success. So if it is if it is a failure, then I think we'll see that maybe governments will change their strategy on this sort of thing. Uh, and it will be bad because we'll have accumulated a, a three or four more billion dollars worth of debt, but it won't be the full $13 billion. That's the headline number. All right. Uh, the national economy continues to grow. Uh, some surprise at this, considering uh, the measures that have been in place to try to cool the economy. Is it a surprise that we're seeing the growth that we have this quarter? So I don't know if you remember, but uh, we've been talking about the possibility of the recession um, in, in previous meetings. And uh, I've always said that I thought that the, the recession was was a rumor that was being greatly exaggerated, that, mm. that we weren't going to have as bad a recession. It would be maybe a mild slowdown uh, later this year, uh, but nothing like what uh, some of the forecasters were predicting. So to me, this personally is not a surprise, but I was on the optimistic end. Uh, and I think what's happening is that people are, I think, realizing that the very positive labor market news we've been having with the, the low unemployment rates, that actually means something. I think uh, maybe some people were kind of overlooking that and saying, oh, there are these other signs with the higher interest rates and perhaps overlooking what we were seeing with our own eyes, which is a tight labor market. It seems we were talking about a recession longer than we thought it would last. <laughs> yes, I think that's a fair comment. I, uh, I, I think that... You know, there's always a possibility. These things are, are chancy. It's, it's nobody has the perfect uh, crystal ball. Uh, but I think at the moment, the odds are that something like a soft landing is, is the thing that is the most likely. As you predicted way back when. Uh, so are we going to see a hike in interest rates, if not this time, certainly by the fall? So I don't think we're going to see it this time. Uh, 
you can you can work these things out because effectively there's a lot of people who have a lot of money riding on this one way or another. And in effect, they place bets on it in, in the interest rate and the exchange rate market. And you can work out that probably the market thinks there's about a one-third chance of interest rates going up a quarter point at this meeting on uh, Wednesday. Uh, I would would bet with the majority. I don't think it's going to happen. There's a whole bunch of uncertainty going on. Of course, one of the things that's going on right now is the U.S. debt ceiling uh, negotiations. Uh, it now looks there just was a vote that suggests that probably it's going to go through. Uh, if it doesn't go through, that's a real problem. Uh, and then there will certainly not be an interest rate uh, rise. There's also, as you know, there have been some problems with the banking system in the United States. All these things sort of mitigate against a rise. But I think the biggest single reason there won't be is that this is a piece of data that suggests that maybe the economy is going pretty well, uh, but there's always data to come. And most of that data comes after this coming Wednesday. So there's a labor market report, which will tell us what the unemployment rate was uh, in uh, May. And then also there's the inflation report. And this time the inflation report is being delayed a little for technical reasons. They have to do some uh, restructuring of it. And so both of those pieces of information won't be available this Wednesday, but they'll be available a month from this Wednesday. And I think if they're going to take an interest rate action, that will be when. Uh, it turns out the market is betting very slightly that sometime before fall, interest rates will go up a quarter of a point. Uh, I think, you know, I, I don't have a reason to go against the market, but I, I would if I had to bet personally, I think it probably won't happen, but it's very close one way or the other. Uh, it wasn't that long ago, Michael, when some were predicting that hang on for a year or so, rates are going to go down. Is that still in the future or are we just making blind predictions here? Well, again, you can, you can work out what the market's predicting and the market's predicting that U.S. interest rates are going to go down. Um, the United States economy is in a, in a bit worse shape going forward than ours is and, and maybe it's a little bit more likely there. Uh, if U.S. interest rates go down, that would suggest that Canadian ones will follow. Uh, but my best guess is that we'll probably have very stable interest rates at least until the end of 2023. But, you know, it's, it is a mugs game, right? Uh, there are so many events that could happen. Something could happen in Ukraine. This debt ceiling uh, matter could not go the way it looks like at the moment. There's so many things that can happen uh, that it's very hard to predict interest rates that far in the future. And, of course, if you could, you'd make a whole bunch of money. Uh, and obviously, the wild card here has always been the unemployment rate, which is historically low right now. How do you explain that at this time? I think it's it's that simple. Employers want to hire people, and and they're they're uh, making the labor market tight. Um, gradually, we're starting to get the natural response, which is a bit better wage increase than than we've seen in the past. Um, I think it's a great thing. You know, people are finding work, uh, and. I think we have have some way to ride that cycle. Uh, it's simply the fact that people do want to spend, as this this last report showed us. Uh, they're, they're not really discouraged by the prospects of a recession. Uh, it doesn't seem to bother people if the unemployment rate is so low. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think it's a great thing, right? The, the yeah. only problem in the past has been that sometimes uh, people have tried to make the economy run so hot with... Uh, particularly with monetary policy going into quite the distant past, that we started to get really high rates of inflation. But this particular time, it's at least arguable that the, the high rate of inflation was caused by a very special set of circumstances. And that's why we're seeing the rate of inflation starting to go down. I think it's entirely plausible that we're going to see an inflation rate below four in the next report. Um, and that's quite a come down because you remember, it's not so long ago, we we're talking about mm. inflation rates pretty close to eight. Michael Beal with us, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Statistics Canada Research Data, Se uh, Data Center. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. Thanks very much. A quick break here. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, federal government, and, and we've certainly heard, like, Ottawa is a ghost town, apparently. I mean, I, I worked in Ottawa for a year or so, and um, downtown, it's all these little gray, mid-size, mid-rise buildings filled with government employees. And I remember the family and I joking when we were there on a visit recently that the downtown is literally, well, actually, this was before the pandemic, uh, when, you know, things were relatively normal. Uh, the down, downtown in Ottawa was virtually vacant. After five o'clock, they literally roll up the sidewalks. There is nothing going on compare, uh, which is very bizarre considering it is such a historic city and the nation's capital. Now the federal government is talking about selling off 50% of its buildings. Uh, perhaps redesigning them for uh, housing and such due to, uh, obviously, the hybrid work that uh, government workers are doing now. What does that mean for the civil service moving forward, which has increased by about 30% over the course of the prime minister's tenure? And what does it mean for the city of Ottawa or other cities like this? Uh, let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies, and is here now. Daniel, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. How, what sort of impact is this going to have just on the city of Ottawa itself, do you think, Daniel? I think what we're going to see is more people coming downtown because they have no, they have a reason now to come downtown because they might be living there if the government mm. goes ahead and turns this, turns the office space into um, new rentals and new property for people to buy. But I think it's a very smart move for the government. Like you said, Ottawa is the city that fun forgot, mainly because most people leave the downtown core around four. Uh, 4 four thirty, and go up to the suburbs. So I think it makes sense for the government to look to try to offset some of these assets because they're just sitting there at the moment. Uh, it's interesting you talked about uh, residential and such. I remember when Hamilton was going through its metamorphosis and its its renaissance and such, it was so important to get residential development downtown. People need to live downtown, and we certainly see that. Is there a strong residential presence in downtown Ottawa? Uh, if you like to live in your office, then yes, but uh, <laughs> not really anymore. So how difficult is it easy? I mean, we hear it's difficult to convert some of these buildings to residential. When you're designing an office space, it's completely different than designing a residential space. Is this a pipe dream or is this possible, do you think? Uh, I think it's a bit of column A, a bit of column B. I'm sure the government will throw a fair amount of money at this to make it happen so they can meet their housing goals. But I also think at the same time, there is interest to live downtown because right now there really isn't a reason to come downtown. Traffic is terrible here in Ottawa uh, and it's hard to get here. So I think if we get some more people downtown, we'll get some foot traffic going and there'll be some interest. But like you said, there will be a lot of challenges because some of these buildings have have not seen people in three years. uh, And the biggest population are probably some mice in some cases. So they're going to have to be very careful when it comes to saying, oh, we're going to turn this all into housing because that probably won't be the case. How will that change the complexion of the city, do you think? You you spoke of it being a positive thing because finally it will bring residents downtown. Do you think this is a savior? I think so, especially for local businesses. Their biggest gripe right now downtown is that no one's here. No one's coming to shop at their stores. No one is buying their products. So if we can get people downtown living here, then we're going to see it naturally grow. We'll probably see some more grocery stores. We'll see some more corner stores open up, and there'll be some livelihood down here. So there's a lot of positive to it. 
Why, as a city, has Ottawa not developed residential downtown? Is it just that that's this space is only for government employees and people that work? Because it, it, it seems that every city tries to develop a residential uh, core downtown, but it seems that Ottawa hasn't really done much to, or it really hasn't been a priority for them. Is that accurate? Uh, it's a shock that the city filled with bureaucrats is slow to move. Um, I think that's very accurate. The focus has been supporting the government and allowing government-owned properties and government agencies to work downtown so they can be close to the parliamentarians and their bosses. But I think now as we see the shift to remote work and hybrid, I think that's kind of changing the like who's coming downtown and why they're coming downtown. So I think it makes sense to do this. Uh, how does this or does it affect the 30% that have been hired in the last several years? Uh, we've seen the civil service grow by 30% under the prime minister. Uh, are they all working from home? Uh, yeah, it's very clear the prime minister has zero interest in making the civil service any smaller. So he's going on after the next best thing. And if they're not being in the offices, because they're only required to be in the office two to three days a week, making that footprint a little bit smaller. So yeah, most of them are working from home or they're coming into the office like they're supposed to once or twice a week. But like many cases, if you come in Monday, Tuesday, there's still space for other people to come in Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So there's a lot of room downtown. Uh, will this affect other cities? Is Ottawa obviously the biggest, it will be affected the most? Ottawa, they have the most government space, I think. Of all the property that the government has right now, about 3 million square feet are, is located in Ottawa that's owned by the government. So I think it's very much an Ottawa issue, but there will be ripple impacts in some other major cities like Calgary, Toronto, maybe even Hamilton to a certain point as well. Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies. The federal government intends to sell off 50% of its building uh, buildings as a result of hybrid work and such. Daniel, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You do take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Changes are they needed to the new online news bill, C-18, to prevent the regulator from snooping into newsrooms and threatening the independence of the media? Leaders of media organizations told senators on Tuesday this bill originally designed uh, to help Internet uh, giants stop them from stealing online news content, and this somehow will reimburse uh, the news organizations for this. Uh, that, I think, alone is debatable as, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a sec. Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, Senior Fellow, Massey College, former Director of Journalism at the University of Toronto, uh, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine, Scott. Thanks so much. What are your thoughts on Bill C-18? What is it designed to do? Well, no, one's, no one really knows for sure. And I think that's part of the problem, is that the government has an idea of making media organizations more uh, civic-minded, I guess. And one, ways, one way of doing that seems to be, if this bill ever gets passed, which seems a little bit unlikely in its present form, is to make it much more a reflection of the country it purports, these media companies purport to serve. And I think the nervousness among media organizations, newspapers, and broadcasters is how will the government and the CRTC in particular determine what is acceptable content? And I think that that is, and it seems to be for the nervousness of the media organizations, 
a kind of intrusion into the traditional areas of concern that broadcasters and and newspapers usually have. They are the ones who in the past have been responsible for their content. And if the content runs afoul of the law, and we do have laws against hate speech in this country, then people can complain to various bodies in Ottawa, or they can launch a lawsuit. But to give the CTV, CTC, excuse me, more powers to investigate who's doing the story, do they have the right background, what are their sources, and then to determine whether these news organizations merit continued support, financial and otherwise, from the government is really, for many organizations, it's a step too far. And I, I kind of understand that. I, I wouldn't, if I were still running a news organization, which I've run a couple of them, um, I would be very happy to report to the board of directors and to the public that we serve. But to have the government get that far inside our operation seems to me an overreach. I thought this was all initially designed to get big tech to pay news organizations for content that they were using. Right. The problem is, is that if media organizations get this uh, funding from this source, how will, and it's administered or regulated through the CRTC, how will the CRTC know whether this money is being adequately used in an appropriate way? And I think one of the things that... Uh, the uh, the publisher of the Globe and Mail uh, uh, said uh, was quoted today in the in the Globe and Mail that that it's this may be a little bit too close to the editorial lines of control that newspapers and broadcasters uh, expect. If, for example, you guys take some money from Google or Facebook, how will we know how will anybody know whether this is the right amount of money and whether it's coming to going to the right place and whether it's being used properly and the crtc so far presumes to have some kind of oversight on this and that's what's making the broadcasters and the newspaper proprietors very nervous and i think justly so why is this needed jeff well it's clear that traditional forms of media have not done as well as they have in the past that uh, your lunch and the Globe and Mail's lunch and everybody else's lunch is being eaten up by Google and Facebook and mm -hmm. uh, Twitter and the like. And the, these organizations are taking your content, reposting them on their media platforms, and they're not paying for it. And so one of the ways that is being discussed, and it's not a bad way, the Australians and the Europeans have been doing, uh, started doing this already, is to say, okay, if you're going to take this content, you're going to have to pay for it. Then the question is, okay, how much are we paying? Who's overseeing it? How do we know that the money is being well spent? It gets into a kind of bureaucratic jungle, frankly, that's going to be hard to disentangle. I think the my sense is the best way of doing this is having boards of directors file an annual report to the CRTC saying, here's the money we've got, here's how we've spent it, here's how we plan to spend it if we get any more, which is the traditional way that boards of directors uh, acknowledge payment and, and, and content and how it's used. That, that is to keep the government at a certain arm's length from the 
uh, from the details, from the granularity, as they say, of what you guys do in your newsroom, I think is really important. And it's a def and it defends the, the the principle of the freedom of the press not to be intruded upon by governments or or any other organizations that may have the ear of the government. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Bye. We have been uh, monitoring uh, forest fires going on across the country. Uh, the chatter before was Alberta. Now it is moving to Nova Scotia and the focus there on what that province ha is dealing with. Officials in the province of Nova Scotia say unprecedented wildfires have forced thousands from their homes and keep growing despite the water, raw muscle power and air power deployed by fire crews. To talk more about all of this, Sky Bryden Blom is with us, digital broadcast journalist, Global News and in Nova Scotia. Sky, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you so much. Yes, as well as can be expected, just given everything that's going on in the community. I can imagine. What is it like there? Um, uh, let's start with air quality. I mean, obviously, the areas that are that are affected are uh, are on fire. But what about the rest of the province? Are you feeling uh, the, the residue of that in the smoke and such? Absolutely. I know even last night there were some new fires that broke out and the sky was just full of smoke. And on my drive home, like I passed through several communities and it was just so thick and and the air just feels so heavy and you can just smell it. It hits you like a wall uh, when those winds pick up and they're they're, you know, in your direction. It's uh, it's something I've never seen before. When did this get out of hand? When did when was this all of a sudden a serious issue for Nova Scotia? It was honestly so fast, at least for the fire that's just outside of Halifax. I know on Sunday afternoon around 3.30, I think that's when the first reports came in. And within an hour, you could just see smoke everywhere. And it wasn't long after that, but, you know, the evacuation started and the emergency alerts started rolling out. And it's been a battle ever since. The weather isn't cooperating either. I mean, you know, it's really hot. It's dry. There's no humidity. How many fires, how many people, how many citizens are affected by this, are on the move? Yeah, it's such a confusing situation in a lot of ways because, you know, we're calling the Tantalan area, which is outside of Halifax, uh, the Tantalan fire. But it, right now there's hot spots, so they're quite big. But the evacuation zone for that region alone has more than 16,000 people out of their homes. And then there's another wildfire that's raging in the Shelburne area. And I'm not sure how many people, I think it's about 2,300 there who've been evacuated. And then in both cases, too, homes destroyed. So for the fire that, again, is closer to Halifax, closer to our city, uh, about 151 homes have been completely destroyed at this point with, with the figure that they've been able able to gather and, and the information from going in there. Where is everybody going? It, we have some shelter, not shelters, um, different centers that are open up. One is an overnight location, but for the most part, it seems that people are taking to hotels, uh, going with friends. A lot of people had to leave so quickly that, you know, they only had the clothes on their backs. So they had to buy new clothing, new items to get them through. Still don't know when they'll return to their homes either. How close to large built up areas or residential areas are these fires? Right. So the one, again, that's closer to Halifax, and that's where I'm based. So it's easier for me to talk about that one. And I've been covering that in depth. 
but I mean, it's in, it's in, it's in a huge community of, of beautiful homes that are well spaced apart with lots of trees and, and also some schools in the area, a daycare apparently, uh, was destroyed by, by the flames in that community. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is quite troubling. And the fire was so hot and raging so badly that, you know, it's interesting because some homes are completely destroyed, but others, it could jump and pass and, and they still stand. So a very strange, strange view of, of that community now as well in terms of, of how that fire spread and what it destroyed so far. And any word at this point of the cause? We heard the premier talking about, um, you know, knock it off with the fires. People have been burning and, and gave examples of that and such. Do we know the cause of these? So it's under investigation, but they're using, they believe it's it's man-made because obviously there was no lightning that day or, or anything like that. And also the province announced today that it is taking a very strong stance against illegal burning. They've actually raised the fine from $240 if you're caught again for illegal burning to 25000 Holy smokes. Uh, no pun intended there. What? Uh, so what is the weather forecast for the area as we head into the next week? So right now, uh, today, very hot, humid, and or not humid, and very dry. So kind of ideal conditions for a bad fire. It's not what you want. Tomorrow, looking pretty similar. I believe the last check of the forecast, temperatures in the 30s. But we could see some rain starting on Friday night. And then from there on out, hopefully some showers. And, and, and I don't know, maybe it could be emperor's some of these fires i just i don't know what kind of rain it will take to do that though hmm. uh do does the province need any help or equipment at this time where is that coming from so right now they did just make an ask on the federal government looking for more support and they're also reaching out to get some help from new england so i think that that would be in the form of hopefully more fire crews i know that they compared it to when we had a hurricane here hurricane fiona they were talking about how we had quite a bit of assistance from new england so they're hoping to to get that kind of help again for for these wildfires and i don't know you know how much they'll increase the people on the ground or, or that sort of thing. Right now, they seem to be responding well when they get hot spots and flare-ups. They seem to be getting it under control pretty quick. We certainly hear lots of this sort of activity out west. It's an ongoing thing. It happens every year. Lightning strikes usually and such. Is this is this unprecedented for Nova Scotia, though? I, yeah, absolutely, especially for an area that's more urban. I don't remember. I've lived here my my whole life, and I can't remember a fire like this. I know that the one in Shelburne right now, I can't remember how big it is. I want to say around 17,000 hectares. Uh, that's apparently the biggest in the history of the province or, you know, a known history in terms of, of wildfires. So uh, it is very different and i know i have seen so many tears this week and and so many emotions over these mm. fires and so much fear you know people haven't had to have evacuation plans they haven't had to think about packing all of their belongings in minutes before and now that is on the minds of of many and uh, you said a lot of this attributed to to mankind humankind uh, action and such do we know of any charges that are coming as a result of this or the cause of the one near halifax no, again, the latest update that I covered today, they said it is definitely under investigation, but we've had no no further movement in terms of whether or not there would be charges or the exact cause of, of this fire. And how difficult is it to breathe in and around Halifax? 
you know, it changes again with that wind, which is something I didn't realize. Again, we have two big areas of wildfires burning. So when that wind changes, you could have smoke from both. And for example, when that fire broke out, I was, I'm probably about 20 minutes away in terms of driving when it broke out on Sunday afternoon and the smoke was above my head and it it became so intense Mm. when I was standing in, in my parking lot at my apartment that ash was falling on me and my eyes were burning and it was challenging to breathe. And, and again, surprising because I, I felt pretty far away from the community at that point. I haven't felt that intensity since then, but again, it's almost like a smog. It's heavy. When I look out the window right now, I can see a haze out there and it is, it is smoke from the fires. Man, Sky Bryden Blom with us, digital broadcast journalist in Nova Scotia for Global, talking about the unprecedented wildfires that have uh, taken over Nova Scotia. Uh, Sky, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Scott Radley joins us now coming up after the 6 o'clock news with the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am doing great. How are you doing? So far, so good. Uh, Leafs and a new general manager. Should we get excited? Do you like Boston pizza? (laughs) If so, then you should be very excited. Uh, yes. Why is that? Well, he, Brad Treliving, comes from the Treliving family of Dragon's Den fame Trelivings of the Boston Pizza Empire. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, but uh, yeah. look, I, you know what? This is, this, is, um, this is one of the really interesting stories in sports around here because there are those who believe Kyle Dubas, letting him go was the biggest mistake ever and that he was this brilliant, young, analytically driven GM who did everything right and the players basically hung him out to dry, but he was great. And there's others who say, no, he had what, seven years, eight years, six years, whatever it was. And he won one playoff series. And so if you were good, you would have done better than that, no matter who the players were. And it's, it's just so interesting that the, the people who are in his camp, even today, like two weeks or a week, whatever it is after he was fired, are looking at Brad Treliving going, oh man, he, what was he, the Calgary Flames? Like, pff, what did they do? They traded away the guy who may be winning the Conn Smythe Trophy in these playoffs, uh, Matthew Kachuk. Well, yes, he did. He traded him away because Kachuk said, I'm leaving, so I'll give you one team that you can trade me to, see what you can get. I mean, it wasn't exactly, you know, a GM's dream <clears throat> position to be in. Um, but you know what? There are others who say, no, Brad Treliving is... He's kind of been hidden because he's been in Arizona and he's been in Calgary, which are not exactly huge markets. And now that he has all the resources he could possibly want, and he's pretty good at what he does, and he's got the sort of the the foundation of an excellent team, if he does the right things, he could be fantastic. So, uh, you know what though, Scott, we're at the point with the Toronto Maple Leafs, 56 years in, (laughs) but also since Austin Matthews has been here when people thought, oh, you know what? This is the guy who is going to lead mm-hmm. them back to the, it's at the point now where I don't care if you're a Brad Living fan or a Kyle Dubas fan or whatever, you're just saying, uh, frankly, I couldn't care less what goes on. Just win the bloody thing. Just win something for me. I'm dying here. Just win something. <laughs> uh, we hear that experience was a factor. What makes this guy attractive in your mind? Well, um, All right, then. No, no. I mean, (laughs) the thing we never know, and this is true of anybody who gets hired for a job, whether it's a general manager hiring a coach or a president hiring a general manager or whomever, we don't 
see or hear what's said in those interviews. And there are certain guys that sometimes you look at and you go, how in the world did they land that job? There are guys who do great interview, who are fantastic in interviews Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. other guys who may be really bright, who just don't do good interviews. Clearly, and I don't know which one he is, and I don't know, you know, we're going to see if he's really, really bright or not. But clearly he had to have said something to Brendan Shanahan in that interview, or maybe more than one thing that Brendan Shanahan heard and went, that makes sense. That's a path I want to take. That's someone who's thinking along the same lines I am, or has now given me a thought that I hadn't considered, but sounds like it makes sense. He had, he had to have said something that sold Brendan Shanahan in the interview. Cause I mean, yeah, he's got experience and he's never won a cup. And it's not like you're bringing in someone who's Sam Pollock from the 1970s mm. Montreal Canadiens. There's something there that convinced Brendan Shanahan this was the guy. All right, let's move on to your column today. Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame finally finds a home. How cool is this? Uh, it's it's about time. I thought you were going to go with the other column, about the traffic in the downtown, but we'll do that one maybe tomorrow. Um, the Yeah, the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. Um, this has been going since 2010, and I am a big supporter of the idea. I think it's important mm-hmm. that we recognize and honor people who are great at whatever. We should, we should also have a Hamilton Entertainment Hall of Fame, quite honestly, and a bunch of other things. Uh, but the, the people who run it, and it's a volunteer group, and they put in a lot of their own time, over the years they've been handed items and memorabilia and things. And they're always like, well, we better keep these because we don't want them lost or destroyed, but what the heck do we do with these? And it was only because they've made some connections. And I think probably Don McVicker, who, uh, works at the Eva Rothwell center, uh, Don McVicker, one of the loveliest guys in the city. Uh, I think he probably facilitated them getting some space in there. So they had a place to set this up. Uh, and then the volunteers went and did their thing that they've, 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 Scott, it's a, it is a modest hall of fame space wise, but mm-hmm. they've done a really nice job as far as displaying things. And they've also left themselves. And I asked about this specifically, they've got a lot of other stuff that's not on display. So they've left themselves the possibility that it can be rotated, that you, you know, it's right. not, you can go in a second time in a year or whatever, and right. there'll be something different. It's, it's, it's a cool thing. Got to start somewhere. All right. Uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. See you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. Stephanie says, I'm so glad the hot weather is finally here, but not so happy my AC has just cacked. Stay cool. Nighty night.